You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my co-host and friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello, everyone. And Dr. Carrie Benient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good. Doing good. Spring is around the corner. Boy, I tell you, I hope it gets here very, very soon. We were talking before the episode began about travels that we've been on because I think we've all been so cooped up in our homes. We're ready to go somewhere fun. And our special guest today, Dr. Kristen Van Heertum, is here. And she was telling us about one of her adventures that she went on. Kristen, tell us a little bit about what you were talking about earlier. Sure. Yeah. Hi, everyone. So um, one thing that my husband and I've always done together is travel together. And uh, we've been to Africa. I've been with him three times. He's been two additional times without me. We did our honeymoon was in South Africa. We did a safari and like a snorkeling camp. And then we went to Tanzania August before the pandemic and went and saw the Great Migration. We've been to Morocco. Um, and then my husband actually climbed Kilimanjaro with his dad wow. when he graduated from high school. Yep. And then he did a safari with his mom um, before that as well. So we've we've been missing that for sure. Good grief. So what's like a normal, like you always see these things on TV and everything like that. So like, if you're going to go on a safari, like what do you, what, what's like a normal day? Yeah, sure. So most of these camps, what they'll do is, you know, you'll get up in the morning, you'll have your coffee and, you know, small breakfast. And then where do you stay? Uh, so, okay. That's a great question. Um, Let's get to the important things. <laughs> do I have running water? <laughs> oh yeah. So, I mean, there's all kinds of varying levels of, of luxury versus not. I am more of the glamping type than, <laughs> than the roughing it type. So we always have had showers and toilets and running water. Um, so, you know, for our honeymoon, the place where we stayed, it was one of these tented camp type things that it's a permanent structure, but it's surrounded by canvas and they would actually wake us up at five o'clock in the morning with coffee and tea and, and breakfast. And then we would get up before the sun even rose and go out on a morning drive. You know, the animals were just waking up then. So that was, was perfect. And then usually when it starts warming up, you go back to the camp, you lay by the pool, you eat something, you take a nap, whatever. And then you'll around sundown, you go out again for another ride. Um, and oftentimes they'll stop for, you know, what they call a sundowner, which is basically just a nice little drink out in the safari out in the bush. And then some camps, if it's a, like a private reserve, not a state run uh, reserve, then they'll actually do nighttime drives, which is Really, really cool. Oh, wow. Where's the best place to go if you want to, if you've never been on a safari, where's the best place to go? I think South Africa is a great place to to try to start out. There's uh, Kruger is the main big camp there, and there's a lot of private reserves associated with it that are kind of open. They don't have any fences or anything, so the animals go in and out. Um, but I think the private experience is a lot more fun because you can go off the trails, the late night rides and, and all that. How do you see stuff at night? Is it like lights on the cars and stuff that you can see out with? Yeah, they have like one of those like red lights so it doesn't bother the animals and you can take photos and stuff. So we tracked lions the one time, we tracked hyenas. It was, it was wild. It was a lot of fun. 
So what was the coolest animal that you saw? I'm sure you saw lots of cool animals, but what was the, the coolest? So well, when, in Tanzania, we saw a couple of cheetah, which that was that was really, really cool. They weren't moving. They were laying there. But if they were moving, we probably wouldn't have seen them. And then the other really cool thing we saw was a pack of wild dogs, which it doesn't sound that exotic, but it's actually unusual to see wild dogs. Hmm. Um, we saw them take down an antelope, which was, it's unusual to see that, but it was, wow. we didn't see the actual action of it happening. We saw them chasing and then we saw it after the fact. I think I probably would have cried if we actually saw them take it down. <laughs> so did you get sick or did you get many mosquito bites or snake bites or anything else? <laughs> well, in, in Tanzania, yeah, South Africa, we were fine. Tanzania, they have these tsetse flies, which they are, I mean, they will bite you through your pants. That was, I was yeah, that was rough. Titi sounds like a nice name, but like they're little, but they sound big and mean. No, they're basically like big black flies and, and it's awful. And I did not follow the directions of getting your like clothes treated with permethrin or whatever oh, it is. Yeah. And I just got regular DEET, which did not cover it at all. But otherwise, no, we were fine. Wow. Maybe something for the agenda. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. That sounds very fun. Very fun. Well, Carrie, do you have our question of the day today? Okay. So this question says, hi, I'm really enjoying your podcast. I have a question on missing a period. I've always kept track of my periods because I'm number four in a family of six girls and mom was terrific at reminding us to do so. In that line, I've never missed my period. They've just been later. My shortest cycle is 22 days and, that, and the longest is 44 days. Is there a difference between missing a period and a late period? So really a, a solid question. Susan, what do you think? Well, I would say, first of all, I think we would get a lot of information by you getting your ovarian reserve checked. So, you know, when we have somebody who historically has longer period intervals, which I consider kind of greater than 34 days, so 35 plus, then we kind of think of somebody who may be oligoovulatory, start thinking about somebody who may have PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. It looks oligoovulatory. So not ovulating on a regular basis. So not ovulating, you know, kind of in that day 12 to 16 range that we would normally expect. Um, now, sometimes people with PCOS can have short and long cycles because what happens is you end up having just dysfunctional bleeding that's happening at random times. But I, my kind of little spidey sense of worrying about diminished ovarian reserve or something like that gets a little more concerned when I hear short and long periods, because to me, that's telling me that the brain and the ovaries aren't talking quite effectively. And part of what our job is, is to think about kind of worst case scenarios and, and diminished ovarian reserve is one of the harder things for us to treat. And it's definitely something we don't want to miss um, and waste time because um, we want to get on things um, relatively quickly. So uh, I would say, you know, that that's something that I would highly recommend if you haven't had that done already. Yeah, and I agree with Susan. I think the key thing is when somebody's trying to get pregnant, if you have irregular cycles, the problem is you don't know when your fertile window is. And if you can't figure out when you're fertile, it's hard to know when to have sex and when to get pregnant. So I think our listener needs to see her doctor and do ovarian reserve testing to make sure there's not an issue there. But even if it is something like PCOS, she probably needs to go on some sort of medicine to make her cycles more regular so that she has a better idea of when her fertile window is actually occurring. I think a lot of what the, the consideration is when you're thinking about missing a period versus a late period, it's all based on what's normal for you. Because typically in a system that's functioning normally, the pituitary 
in the brain that sends out all of these instructions and the ovaries should have some type of pattern. And so whether your pattern is every 24 days, 28 days, you know, 29 and three quarters, whatever it may be, that is your pattern versus, yeah, I'm still within the window of time that I, I normally do. So that's maybe just a late period rather than a full missed period. So context is everything in this point. And like Susan said, the ovarian reserve testing that you have is, is a good way to shed light on that historical patterns is a really good way to shed light on it. So it kind of depends on what's going on because women oftentimes have different types of regularity as they're going through their life. Teenager is different than their 20s and 30s, is different than their 40s. And it's really what is normal in context for you that helps us define missing versus late. One thing I would like to mention is it is very normal, and that's kind of in quotes, for women to about every 12 months or so have a little bit of an irregularity in their period. So just because something happens once in a blue moon, that's not something to be super concerned about. But if things are all over the place, that's that's definitely something that should be checked out. All right. Well, good good discussion there. So I'm really pleased to uh, introduce Kristen Van Heerten, who is now a partner in my practice. I'm very happy to have her as a partner at Nashville Fertility Center. And she's going to talk to us a little bit today about, depends on where you come from, reciprocal IVF or shared <laughs> maternity. So Kristen's going to take off from here and explain what we mean by those terms. Great. Thanks so much, Abby. Appreciate it. So yeah, we're going to talk about something um, that I've always referred to as reciprocal IVF, and I just learned today from Carrie that also um, shared maternity is another term for, which you know we it's it's we we like it. But um, either way, basically um, the concept is that in a same-sex female couple, this is a treatment modality that allows them to share the experience of uh, bringing a child into the world, and so. Aside from the option of just doing donor inseminations, in this circumstance, one woman has the opportunity to use her eggs to create embryos, typically with donor sperm, for the other female partner then to carry that pregnancy. And it's very nice to allow them to share that experience together. So when you say, you know, shared or reciprocal, it's not just sharing maternity in the sense that really all parents are sharing maternity, paternity, whatever whatever the appropriate label is for your instance, really all couples are doing that. But this is more of a, a biological sharing and a sharing of the treatment process in terms of what you're actually going through. Correct. Exactly. Yes. Usually these things are done not necessarily in tandem, the, you know, the workup for them, which we can talk about that as well is kind of occurring in tandem, but typically in terms of the treatment, what's happening is the partner that's choosing to use her eggs in the process goes through the typical stimulation of IVF and create her embryos using donor sperm. And then once those embryos are created, then usually after that is when the second partner would go through the preparation for the embryo transfer. So Kristen, how does all this start out? So say a couple's listening today and they're interested in this. How does it all start? What do you do first? Sure. So, you know, they should come and seek care from someone like any of us, you know, a, a fertility <laughs> specialist um, who then can talk to them about the different options. So, you know, options of donor insemination, like I mentioned, which is basically where just one partner is using her, her eggs, having an IUI or intrauterine insemination with donor sperm 
to conceive and then she carries that pregnancy, or there's this option of um, reciprocal IVF that we're discussing. And so a really big important thing is to figure out what are their family building goals, who wants to carry, you know, whose eggs do they want to use? Do they both, how involved do they both want to be? And their comorbidities. So if you have a same-sex couple who comes in to see you and they're like, we want to do this and say one person does not strongly want to carry or give eggs and they're asking your advice, which one should we use the eggs from? How do you give that advice? Absolutely. So Age trumps everything else, unfortunately. That's the biggest thing in fertility, especially for women. Um, The younger partner, if it's a significant age gap, is typically going to have greater success using her eggs than the older partner. Um, Now, if they're both, you know, 26, 27, you know, that's not going to make a difference. But if one partner is 30 and the other one's 42, that certainly is going to have an impact on things. Similarly, if one of them has other medical problems that you're concerned about, you don't want them to carry or if they can't safely, you know, go through any of these procedures, then that's going to have a big impact on which which partner will do which portion. And can you explain how the FDA gets involved with all of this? Because the FDA gets involved with a lot of things that we do if we use third-party reproduction, but explain how it's a little bit different in this situation. Sure. So the FDA is is involved um, in kind of the same capacity that they're involved in regular IVF, uh, meaning we have to have documentation of the um, sexually transmitted diseases for both partners and all that stuff. Because this is a directed donation, essentially, it's not as um, stringent than when it's an anonymous donation. And so if there's something that comes up, then the recipient or the carrying partner can kind of sign off and say, yeah, I'll waive that concern. And certainly with donor sperm, I know the FDA is involved too. They have to do a lot of testing, but because you know, that couple is truly a couple, sexually active couple. Generally, it's it's really no different than if you had same-sex couple or heterosexual couple that's doing IVF, except for the, the donor sperm part of it. Is there any additional counseling or advice from other types of professionals that you um, often direct um, these couples to talk to before starting a cycle like this? Sure. So in our practice, anytime we have anybody using donor egg, donor sperm, gestational carrier, any form of third party, um, we have them consult with a psychologist, really just for implications counseling, make sure this is, do you understand, you know, this is really what this means? How do you talk to your child about it? How do you talk to your family about it? Um, and so just the fact that they are using donor sperm, they're meeting the criteria to, to meet with that person. And they also will talk with them about the entire process of, of reciprocal IVF as well. And I think it's just helpful anytime you're kind of doing something that goes out of the typical societal norm. Certainly, I think it's wonderful, but not everybody will. So it's easier to have some tools ahead of time. Now, you guys are obviously in Tennessee. How do the laws work pertaining to, I mean, obviously, same-sex marriage is protected. In Texas, parentage among same-sex couples is a whole different ballgame. Is that the same in Tennessee? Yeah, so it is all state-dependent. And in Tennessee, it is, if the couple is married, then they both have parentage rights. If they are not married, it's a lot more muddied. And so I think that even can depend on the county. So it's always important to consult with a, an attorney if there's any concerns or questions. Pre-birth orders can be really helpful in those kind of instances where 
you go in and I know that we do a lot of that in, in Nevada or the lawyers that we work with do where they'll just automatically put the second parent's name on the birth certificate before, and they will do that and start that process so that it's just automatic and understood as soon as the kid comes out, the the stage has already been set. And so I would, I would think that in some counties and some, some states, that's a helpful process to know about. You can do it all ahead of time because goodness knows when you've got a newborn. That's the last thing you want to worry about. You don't want to go to court. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So with two women and assuming that they are both, let's say under the age of 35, so kind of our, our model group without any particular risk factors, where it's a same-sex female couple, which, you know, the other way to think about it medically in the infertility realm is just permanent lack of male factor. Do you do you automatically assume or do your patients automatically assume, oh, this is going to be a slam dunk? We're two women, we're young, we're never going to have any problems with that. Do you find that that is the case in reality? I think, I feel like that's how most patients come to me, to be honest, especially <laughs> if they're wanting to do IVF or say they're wanting to do IVF for some genetic condition or, or family balancing or anything like that. Most people don't realize how inefficient human reproduction is. And, you know, especially if it's a, you know, same-sex female couple that neither one of them has been pregnant before or attempted to conceive before, you know, they have unproven fertility at that point. And I always tell all my patients, whenever they're going to go through any kind of IVF process, we don't know how you're going to respond until we actually do this. And all we can do is make our best assessment based on your testing. Unexplained infertility can certainly kick in in, in unfriendly ways. Um, I don't know if you guys have found this, but I find that most of my female couples are just, they're, they're wonderful. They're optimistic. They go through the testing and just do it. And they have a fabulous outlook, but sometimes it's a little bit different when things aren't working. So to remember 15% of heterosexual couples can come in with unexplained infertility where all their testing is totally normal. And women in same-sex relationships are still subject to that. It's just they have less ability to know that ahead of time. So sometimes you find out the hard way going through treatment that, hey, there's, there's an issue here and we don't know exactly what it is. So Kristen, walk us through once the FDA testing's been done, um, once the partner who's going to stimulate has been chosen, kind of how does it how does it break down from there? Sure. So um, as I kind of alluded to, my recommendation is to get your embryos first. It's always a little bit more challenging to try and do a fresh transfer scenario where you have the um, recipient getting ready at the same time. It's just too many moving parts. Um, so I recommend um, that your person who's going to use their eggs, she has her ovarian reserve testing performed to kind of see what protocol and how successful do you think that she will be in terms of going through this stimulation and get your sperm donor chosen. And that involves um, also doing genetic carrier screening that I highly recommend on the um, woman whose eggs that you're going to be using that way, you know, she has a choice in who's in what sperm she uses. And so if she's a carrier for say cystic fibrosis or something like that, then she should choose someone who's been a donor who's been screened for that and screened negative to kind of alleviate the risk of passing that on to a child. And then once she's kind of done with all those things, then she'll go through the typical IVF process of coming in either with her period or being on birth control pills for a little while and starting her injections of stimulation medications. It's usually about a week and a half long process of doing the injections and coming in for monitoring. And then she'll do her egg retrieval um, 
you know, which is performed vaginally. And then once the eggs are retrieved, the eggs are inseminated using the donor sperm. And typically we recommend using ICSI or intracytoplasmic sperm injection because it is frozen sperm. So we just think it's going to have a greater chance of fertilization with that procedure. And then the embryos are, are frozen after they reach the blastocyst stage around day five, six, or seven. And then the question always comes, how long can the embryos be frozen? As long as you keep paying your storage fees. Usually <laughs> <laughs> far beyond that. Because nobody's going to, even if you're not paying the fees, people are very, very hesitant about discarding embryos. Yes, yes, absolutely. That is for sure true. So you've got these frozen embryos and then what happens after that? Sure. So then, you know, likely the uh, recipient will have gone through her testing beforehand. So all the FDA testing that we talked about, make sure her thyroid's under control, kind of all that good stuff. Um, and then some kind of uterine cavity evaluation. So usually a saline ultrasound or a hysterosalpingogram to make sure that the uterine cavity is normal. There's no scar tissue or polyps or fibroids or anything like that. Um, and then she will start a medication plan, usually involving, you know, birth control pills, possibly Lupron and, and estrogen of some form to get the uterine lining thickened and ready to receive the embryo. Um, and then usually she'll receive um, injections of progesterone leading up to the embryo transfer. And then the embryo transfer is done. The embryo is thawed. It's placed into her uterus under ultrasound guidance. And then it's the, the eight to 10 day waiting game of seeing if the pregnancy is there. It's a very exciting process, but it's a lot to go through, isn't it? It is. It is for sure. But it's a nice opportunity for same-sex couples. And I've actually also had um, couples where one of them is a trans man and that still affords him the opportunity to have a biological child without having to carry the pregnancy, um, which can be very important to some, some of these uh, men who have chosen to kind of forego their, their other reproductive options. And down the road, if the partner who you retrieve them eggs from wants to carry a pregnancy, the other advantage is she can carry a biologic sibling, correct? That's right. That's absolutely correct. And then I don't know, um, Carrie and Susan, if you guys use this, this isn't something that we use, but there's uh, something called InvoCell where the sperm and the eggs are put together into a small device, which is essentially an incubator that's placed into the vagina that some people feel that's another way for kind of shared carrying of the pregnancy that the one partner carries that incubator in the vagina as the embryos um, develop. It's not something that we've chosen to use in our lab, but it's, it is something that's out there. And to be clear, it's just an, essentially an incubator where you put the eggs and the sperm and then fertilization takes place in the InvoCell. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then what happens after that with the InvoCell? It's removed and... Yeah, then it's removed usually day five or day six and, and the embryology team takes a look and sees, okay, what do they have in terms of embryo development and then, you know, either frozen or transferred or, or whatever. I do think that the success rates for InvoCell compared to what I would consider kind of the standard IVF process that we all do in our labs is, is significantly different. It is, yes. And it's interesting. I think InvoCell has been around for a long time and sort of has made a resurgence. I've, I've seen more about it lately, but it's something that's been around for a really long time. I think really before labs were as good as they are right now and really didn't have the ability to grow embryos as well as they do right now, the way Susan was alluding to. Yeah, it seems to have a better place in, in places that have limited resources in terms of embryologists and lab equipment. Well, very good. Any closing comments you have, Kristen? 
No, I think, you know, the, the best thing to do is if you have questions, you know, go see a reproductive endocrinologist and talk about your options and realize that there's a lot of ways to do this. Very good. Well, to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. Don't hold back. We love to hear your questions. All right, y'all. We'll talk to y'all soon. Bye. 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 Bye.